Okay, don't skip ahead. I'm going to talk to you about climate change. And I know it can get depressing or infuriating, but our show takes a different approach. It's Laura Lynch, and I'm the host of What on Earth? And we're all about solutions and hope. And I promise, no matter how overwhelming climate change might feel, we're with you on the journey to fix this mess. So listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Phelan Johnson, in for Brent Banbury. This is Day 6. Is there life beyond our little blue planet, and how much does the government know about it? Do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely. We've had a heck of a lot of pushback about this hearing. There is public interest in this issue. The American people deserve to know what is happening in our skies. Because at the end of the day, there are potential national security implications. Congress looks for the truth about UFOs. That's coming up on Day 6, today. Patterns of injustice. Something's fundamentally broken. Tracking indigenous deaths in police custody. The return of Neopets. Oh, there's my pet that I created, you know, when I was 10. And the nostalgia they still inspire. And the sound effect that became an icon. The origin of the Wilhelm scream. All today on day six. The I have no mouth and I must scream edition. We're not bringing little green men or flying saucers into the hearing. Sorry to disappoint about half y'all. We're just going to get to the facts. That was the scene in Washington this week at an eagerly anticipated congressional hearing into UFOs. What the U.S. government might know about them and what it might not be telling people. The hearing centered mostly on the testimony of former Air Force intelligence officer David Grush. Mr. Grush, as a result of your previous government work, have you met with people with direct knowledge or have direct knowledge yourself of non-human origin craft? Yes, I personally interviewed those individuals. Grush went public this summer with claims to have knowledge of alien encounters and crashed crafts, which he says amount to a government cover-up. If you believe we have crashed craft, uh, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries, yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. Garrett Graff is a contributing editor at Wired Magazine and the author of an upcoming book on the U.S. government's history of UFO research. He says the government probably is covering up something here, but that it's likely not what David Grush says it is. Garrett, good morning and welcome to Day 6. Thanks so much for having me. So theories about the existence of UFOs have been floating around for the better part of a century. So why have a congressional hearing now? In 2017, there was a pair of blockbuster reports by the New York Times and Politico that the U.S. Pentagon had been sort of secretly studying the possibility of UFOs and extraterrestrial intelligence over the decade previous. And that really kicked off a remarkable change in the conversation around UFOs, which the the government actually now calls UAPs, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, and really an attempt to destigmatize the idea of uh, you know flying saucers or UFOs 
as something worthy more of giggles than serious conversation. Some people are calling this hearing historic. What's your take on that? Yeah, I I think that this hearing in particular was not particularly revelatory for what we learned in it, but it is part of this legitimately historic shift in serious people having serious conversations around this topic. You know, it's worth noting that discussing UFOs or, or UAPs is not the same as saying, I believe that there are aliens visiting Earth. And the Congress people who questioned the witnesses seem to come at the hearing from very different levels of belief. What kind of tone did they set at this hearing? So I think that there are there were several different related conversations taking place in the hearing. And, and part of that is worth untangling the witnesses who were before the the congressional committee this this past week. Um, you had two Navy fighter pilots who have had very well-documented and officially corroborated encounters with UAPs. And there's video of that. There's sensor data. There are multiple uh, military witnesses. There is very little doubt that what happened to those two Navy pilots actually happened. Then there's a th- there was a third witness this week, David Grush, who is an intelligence officer who has been uh, the subject of a lot of media coverage earlier this spring as he comes forward saying that there is a secret U.S. government UFO crash retrieval program that uh, has recovered alien technology, and then he goes sort of one step further and says they've also recovered alien bodies, and then he he goes even one step beyond that to say it's part of a 90-year cover-up by the U.S. government that dates back to fascist Italy and Mussolini and the Vatican before World War II. Mm-hmm. And the witnesses gave reports of unidentified aircraft that were dark gray or black cubes inside of a clear sphere. Grush also alleges that non-human biologics were found at the crash site or a crash site. Do you think that there's any truth to these stories? I have reason to doubt David Grush on his most outlandish claims. You know, I've just finished writing a book about this subject And over the last 40 years, we have seen a lot of people like David Grush come forward. And what has never emerged is any documentary evidence. You know, a memo, a briefing packet, a piece of a crashed spacecraft. Almost all Mm -hmm. of these over the last 40 years have been second or third hand. David Grush so far is basically saying the same thing, that he does not have firsthand knowledge of these things, but he knows people who have firsthand knowledge of them. Mm -hmm. I've covered national security for 20 years, and I tend to discount government conspiracy theories because they seem to presuppose a level of competence in secret keeping that does not exist in most of the rest of the work that the government does. You've said that there's definitely a U.S. government 
cover-up. What is it? There is certainly a government cover-up about its knowledge of UFOs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the cover-up is due to the answer being aliens. The government covers up some percentage of these encounters because it involves sensitive sensors that it doesn't want our adversaries to know what it can see and what it can't see. Mm. The second level is, you know, surely some chunk of UFOs are our own secret military technologies being tested. Um, and then the, th the third level of the cover-up is just, uh, I think, a cover-up probably of ignorance, not knowledge. You know, it's a pretty uncomfortable thing for our government to say, hey, there's stuff up there, we don't know what it is. That's not something that's comfortable for a country like the United States that spends $800 billion a year on national defense. Mm-hmm. And you've said that you think there are real legitimate questions about UFOs or UAPs. What are those questions? We know that there is stuff up there that we can't explain and we can't understand. And frankly, our government and our military should be more concerned about that and more focused on trying to answer what those questions actually are. Because, uh, you know, we're either going to unlock some really interesting science that we don't currently understand, or we're going to find out that our adversaries are further ahead in some technological races than we currently understand. Part of the challenge and the shift in this conversation is we need to destigmatize reporting of those strange objects one of the things that one of those witnesses said is that they think that only about 5% of encounters with those technologies are being reported right now. We want to find out what those other 95% of encounters are like so that we can begin to solve this mystery. And there are no shortages of conspiracy theories dividing American politics right now. And yet somehow the issue of UFOs is the one thing there's bipartisan cooperation on. Did you see that coming? Yeah, it, it's to me one of the, the uh, most amusing aspects of this whole thing is, you know, this was a remarkably friendly and bipartisan hearing this past week between Democrats and Republicans at least so far, no single party has figured out how to bend the aliens to partisan benefit. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking with me today, Garrett. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Garrett Graff is a contributing editor at Wired Magazine and author of the forthcoming book, UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. Six. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Back then, I was so naive. I actually thought that's all it would take. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't care about kids? If you found out you're racially discriminating against kids as a government, wouldn't you move heaven and earth to fix it? This week, after a 16-year battle, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal approved a $23 billion agreement to compensate victims of the underfunded First Nations child welfare system. In 2007, led by Cindy Blackstock, the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, and the Assembly of First Nations filed a human rights complaint against the Government of Canada. They alleged that child welfare services for First Nations children living on reserve 
were underfunded and discriminatory when compared to the funding available to non-Indigenous children. And in 2016, after years of appeals and battles, the Human Rights Tribunal agreed and ruled in their favour, setting off a range of lawsuits, appeals and proposed settlements. The compensation agreement will now be submitted to federal court for final approval. And the Biden administration has given a green light for U.S. military and intelligence agencies to share evidence of possible Russian war crimes in Ukraine with the International Criminal Court, or ICC. The U.S. never signed the 1998 Rome Statute that established the ICC. It therefore does not recognize the court's jurisdiction. The U.S. has fought against ICC efforts to investigate U.S. military personnel for possible war crimes in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. The Pentagon strongly resisted the Biden administration's move. Still to come on Day 6, tracking Indigenous deaths in police custody and trying to change the way the investigations happen. I'm Phelan Johnson, in for Brent Banbury. Someone you loved is dead. You have to relive that trauma for that long? My favorite neopet is in Aisha, specifically my Aisha, on my account. Maybe the word neopet doesn't ring a bell to you, but if you were born between about 1987 and 1993, there's a good chance you're already in a nostalgic spiral just from hearing the word. Neopets was launched in 1999. It was an online platform where you could choose, customize, and care for your own virtual pets. Think Pokemon meets Animal Crossing. It was a cutesy, charming place to hang out with your friends and play early internet flash games. But it was also an entire world. There was a sprawling map to explore, guilds to join, social forums, poetry contests. There was even an in-game banking system and stock market. So to all the tech bros who think they invented the metaverse, check yourselves. Neopets got there first. If you haven't thought about Neopets since middle school, you're not alone. But there's a loyal group of dedicated Neopians who have stuck with it all this time. Like Zach Silverman, a staffer at Jelly Neo, a Neopets wiki site. To some extent, Neopets has felt like a sort of social experiment of how long a really dedicated user base can take it before everyone just vanishes. After a series of rocky ownership changes, Neopets just announced that it is now owned by an internal team. And the new leadership has big plans. They're making moves to refresh the site, preserve old content, lure back lapsed users, and attract new ones. Caroline Bartlett and Hannah Scott Pearson are the co-hosts of the Neostalgia podcast and longtime Neopet players. Caroline, Hannah, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good Good morning. morning. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Hannah, how long have you been playing Neopets? Oh, gosh. Um, I have been playing Neopets for, I want to say just over 20 years. I believe my account was created in 2003. So most of my life. (laughs) And Caroline, what about you? Yeah, similar. Uh, I've been playing for almost 21 years. I created my first account on Christmas Day 2002. So it's been part of my life for quite a while as well. And Hannah, what keeps you playing after all this time? 
I think what kept me coming back was just the familiarity um, and, of course, the nostalgia of it all. It was like a really key part of my childhood and my adolescence and something that I got really, really into at an early age. And so uh, I always said, you know, throughout college, like even if I didn't play there very much, I I wanted to preserve the account to preserve like my legacy, quote unquote, on the site. Yeah, a lot of it really was just kind of holding on to that one piece of uh, childhood and and youth. And Carolyn, same question for you. Why have you stuck around? I would say similar reasons. Definitely nostalgia is a big part of it. It really reminds me of a time when things were a lot simpler. It's kind of an escape from the real world. Um, and it's got such a great community. You know, I think that most of the folks who are playing these days are millennials like us who are kind of trying to recapture that youth. So we've we've stuck with it all these years. Hannah, the tagline for your podcast is like Neopets, it isn't for children. That might surprise people because Neopets is very cutesy and very <laughs> childlike. Why would you say it's not for children? Yeah, we came up with that tagline uh, when we started the podcast like almost five years ago. And it was really at a time when I think there was a lot of possible disconnect between the current player base who felt like, you know, as Caroline said, the majority of them are millennials in their late 20s and 30s who grew up with the site and were kind of like, you know, we're adults. Let us act like adults. Let us speak and interact like adults. You know, Neopets was previously owned by Jumpstart, which was very much a kid-focused gaming education-based company. And so I think there was this feeling of like, you know, Neopets, well, well cutesy and well maybe geared towards um, kids with the marketing years ago has kind of developed a player base now that's very much grown. And the initial or the original founders of the site um, have said, you know, that they originally started Neopets for bored college students. It was initially started with the goal of, of entertaining young adults who just kind of needed something to do and some place to escape to. And I think it's uh, withheld that. Caroline, most people who played Neopets in the early 2000s haven't checked back in almost two decades. How has the site held up over time? So there have been a lot of challenges. Most of the site is built using very old tech. And, you know, I think the Neopets team has tried to keep it going um, and update the pages to the latest tech. Um, but they have not been able to do everything. They've been working with pretty limited resources. So yeah, there are parts of the site that don't work anymore, or there are parts of the site you can only access by kind of using these third-party extensions and workarounds. For me, it was really disappointing with the death of Flash in 2020. A lot of the games that were on the site were no longer playable, which was kind of a big thing for me. But they have actually brought a lot of those back very recently as part of this kind of new push for a quote unquote neopian renaissance. The promise has been that, you know, they're going to continue to work to fix that and restore it back to its former glory. Have you heard anything about what it feels like for some of these lapsed neopets players to to return to the platform and maybe see some, you know, wide eyed, dewy faced, hungry neopets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always have to remind everyone, your Neopets may be starving, but they will never die. 
that is not a thing that happens on the site, thankfully. Um, so it's kind of interesting. They're kind of frozen in time. And, you know, however they were when you last logged on, uh, they're going to be there. Um, and of course, you know, they are just pixels on a screen. But for people, you know, it's it's a really comfort to kind of go back and see like, oh, there's my pet that I created when I was 10. You know, you can come back and you can still feed them their omelets and you can still dress <laughs> them up. So if you have an interest in coming back to Neopets, Neopets is there for you. <laughs> I think this is just my own paranoia speaking because I say please and thank you to Siri, Alexa, <laughs> to, to everything. I, I, it's my own tech paranoia speaking. Um, Hannah, Neopets has had a bit of a shaky ownership and, and history over the years. So what's the deal with the new ownership? As far as we know, it's pretty exciting. It's uh, Neopets was previously owned by Jumpstart Games, which just announced the end of Jumpstart, I guess, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So Neopets, you know, assured everybody that they weren't going anywhere, and then very shortly after announced an independent ownership. So they've um, have a new CEO. His name's Dominic Law, and they are now owned by a new company, World of Neopia Incorporated. Um, this is perhaps the most promising news that we've gotten from Neopets in the last 10 years, I would say, just in terms of a, a new direction. And it feels like the current staff are able to be a lot more transparent about some of the challenges that they were facing with Jumpstart, which I think, uh, you know, was often a little bit stifling in terms of their creative direction and what they were able to allocate funds for. We do know that they were basically running at a loss for the last few years. And so with this new ownership and new sort of like push toward a, a brand ambassador program and um, all of these new site events and, and resurgence at Comic-Con and all of that, I, I hopefully they can kind of pick themselves back up and, and bring on that, that renaissance that they're pushing for. Caroline, what do longtime players like you hope the new changes will mean for the future of Neopets? So I think first and foremost, we really want to see the core site improved. You know, we want to see these bugs fixed. We want to see features and games brought back that haven't been working. They've talked about doing, you know, some offshoots. There's a, a mobile app that they're working on that replaces this previous Neopets metaverse that they were pushing. And I think the fan base wasn't super thrilled about that because it wasn't really it didn't really align with what Neopets is about. So I think making sure to preserve that feeling of, of the original Neopets while still branching out into mobile and other games and trying new things, but also preserving that site and preserving that history and lore that's really important to players. It does feel like we are on the precipice of this new era of Neopets. There's going to be the 25th anniversary next year. And I think, I think the team is, is going to do their best to really make it happen. Okay, and here comes the hard-hitting journalistic question. <laughs> Hannah, we know you love all your Neopets equally, but do you have a favorite? <laughs> I do. Um, I love all of the cat-based Neopets, specifically a Neopet called the Aisha. And it's a little cat-like Neopet with kind of alien antenna. So that is my favorite. And I, I have one on my account. And, um, yeah, I, ha I have a little bit of a preference for her. <laughs> uh, and what about you, Caroline? 
I am very much into kind of the rodent-like Neopets. Um, I mm-hmm. used to have pet rats when I was younger, so that's always been something I find appealing. So my favorite is the Mirka, uh, which has kind of this long tail, these uh, kind of rodent-like appearance. And the first pet I ever created, which I still have to this day, was my yellow Mirka. So that would have to be my favorite. <laughs> Caroline... Should a lapsed Neopets player who hasn't logged on since 2004 return to the fold now? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, there may be some challenges if, you know, you, like me, signed up with an email address that no longer exists. <laughs> but, you know, I would say do your best to get into your old account. If not, you can always create a new one. And I think you'll find there's a lot to see there, a lot to do. And I think we're going to need more players and more support if we really want to make this Neopian renaissance happen. Yeah, come back, check it out, tell your friends, Neopets is back. Thank you both for taking the time to walk me through Neopets. Of course, this has been great. Our pleasure, truly. (laughs) Caroline Bartlett and Hannah Scott Pearson are the co-hosts of the Neostalgia podcast. It's hard because he's never going to be able to be there for any kind of monumental moments. Like he didn't get to see my little brother start his first day of school. He didn't get to see me graduate. He won't be able to see me get married. He'll never be able to see my little sister start kindergarten or graduate or anything like that. And we won't be able to have him there. That's Lily Speed Namox. She's the daughter of Dale Culver, a Wet'suwet'en man who died after being detained by police in Prince George, B.C. in 2017. This week, three RCMP officers charged with attempting to obstruct justice in connection with his death had their first court appearance. Last month, two other RCMP officers pleaded not guilty to manslaughter. All five officers were charged in February, five and a half years after Dale Culver's death. If the RCMP and my dad had switched roles, my dad would like, it wouldn't have gone this way. There's no way it would have taken this long. According to Leonard Clare Cunningham, Dale Culver's case is part of a long pattern of police abuse and neglect towards Indigenous people. Leonard Clare Cunningham is a researcher who helped create a project called Not in the Public Interest. Leonard, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. So when you hear the family of Dale Culver talk about the long and painful journey they have endured since his death in RCMP custody, what is your reaction? Uh, Six years is absolutely grotesque and unacceptable. Uh, Not only that, but to go through two processes that seemingly duplicate each other, the IIO investigation and the coroners, it's uh, almost venal incompetence. Bad enough that someone you loved is dead. You have to relive that trauma for that long. That's a breakdown on uh, the government's end. Dale Culver is not alone. In fact, you have been documenting Indigenous deaths in BC police custody. How many cases have you found? The exact numbers are lost in the midst of time. But if we're going to focus on numbers, people need to realize that more people die in police custody in British Columbia than anywhere else in Canada. Uh, We have twice as many jail and police-involved deaths as Ontario, even though Ontario is three times the population. We have the largest number of deaths per year of any of the provinces. Something's fundamentally broken. 
between 2013 and 2017, 127 people died after contact with the police. First Nations people accounted for 20% of the deaths. That's 3.5 times higher than non-Aboriginal people. We had looked at data from the coroner's office, showed that 60% of all First Nations deaths from 93 to 2003 while incarcerated occurred in police custody. For the non-Aboriginal population, the figure was 25%. Here's the interesting thing. When a First Nations person died in custody, the coroner ruled that the cause of death was undetermined in 20% of the cases. Well, the undetermined rate for the non-First Nations population was 8 For race to pop up as a statistical anomaly really does demand that you take a deeper look at it. And how far back are we talking? We started in 1967. For too long, there's um, a view as First Nations as passive victims of violence. But we keep forgetting that there's actually tales of resistance. So we started in 67 because it was the rape and murder of Rosemary Roper. She's a young Shishwap girl, uh, worked as a kitchen aide at uh, Williams Lake Residential School, gone out for drinks at a bar at 100 Mile House, accepted a ride from three white guys home. Uh, her naked body was found the next day at the garbage dump at Williams Lake. According to the Court of Appeal documents, the three men all attempted to have sex with her, basically raped her. When she fought back, they dumped her out. Uh, dead body found the next day. They had tied her panties to the car aerial and continued the evening's festivities at the dance at Lac La Hache. $200 fine for common assault. First Nation community just said, forget it. Screw you. So when Douglas Higginbottom was gut shot and later Fred Quilt, seminal case, they went and hired Henry Castillo, a lawyer who fought. He said, listen, this was a roadside execution. They left Douglas Higginbottom to bleed out while an ambulance was dispatched to deal with the RCMP. Fred Quilt uh, died of perforated bowels, literally having the shit kicked out of you. Uh, Castillo took that to the BC Supreme Court. The coroner's office was allowing the RCMP to run and organize to determine the cause of death and ultimately, of course, clearing themselves. So those three marked a very seminal political moment for the BC First Nations. And you call this project not in the public interest. Why? Truth is, I didn't name it. Uh, the Vancouver Police Department, BC Coroner's Office, and the Office of Information and Privacy in the RCP gave it that name. Out of all those deaths, we had isolated 25 serious cases that really did warrant further investigation. We requested the documents in order to do the job properly, and they refused to release. And so we had to take them to the Freedom of Information judicial process. So basically the coroner's office and the cops all hire lawyers. So we had to legally fight and we lost. Now, there's a legal principle of public interest. Public interest is, for layman's understanding, if I stop 10 people on the street and I ask them, do you care? Is this important? The coroner's office and the police, basically, well, the whole world is discussing whether black lives matter. They said, First Nations lives matter. Are you kidding? We don't care. And they won. It's incomprehensible in this day and age. So you received not in the public interest as the response to your multiple requests for information. Yes. Yeah. And when you confront police about this, how do they respond? Been doing this kind of work for a while. So it's different. The police aren't monolithic. I had an amazingly wonderful meeting with the Vancouver Police Department. Um, We need to be as loud in praise as we are in our criticism. So I had a very good open-door meeting, no holds barred. Basically, they had taken the approach of, look, we're human. 
we can make mistakes. We're not perfect. But we are committed to working with whomever is out there to improve policing. We have that responsibility. That was encouraging. Now, the RCMP had no interest in meeting. So think about it. You're the communications director. I am willing to share before the press conferences any of this information. They're like, go away. We don't care. Uh, Coroner's office, haven't heard back from them either. In February of this year, five RCMP officers were charged in the 2017th death of Dale Culver. How unusual is that? Well, seismically, uh, I'm going to quote somebody here. When the officers were charged, I think it was Grand Chief Sir Philip, his response was, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah, none of us ever thought we would see this day. And we need to remember that the IIO is in its infancy. We've given them a difficult task in a hostile environment. They had to take uh, the police to court to make them participate. They're underfunded. Well, I think they should be an independent office of the legislature. How could things have been done differently so that families like the Culvers can be spared all the pain that they've endured on top of losing a loved one in police custody? It's time to get rid of the coroner's office, either replace it with a medical examiner system led by a forensic pathologist. Think about it. Do not put families through two processes of looking at the death without help, support, or legal counsel. So we need to fully support the families through this. Get rid of one of these processes. I personally say coroner's office appears to us as just basically a rubber stamp. We even had a letter from former coroners and medical examiners saying that it's a bloater bureaucracy committed to secrecy. These are their own people. So for the Office of Information and Privacy Commission and the BC coroners, this is not in the public interest. I don't know what landscape they live in, but when we ask the question, how could it be that priests could bury children? Guess what? This is how. Those kids weren't in the public interest. They didn't matter. And welcome to the coroner's office and the Office of Information and Privacy. They put their name on that decision. Nobody cares. Go away. And we're talking this level of suffering for families. And the changes we're pursuing will hopefully keep people alive. Leonard, I want to thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. I hope this is the beginning of a long conversation. Thanks again, Leonard. Leonard Claire Cunningham is a researcher and one of the people behind the project not in the public interest. We asked the Vancouver police and the BC Coroner Service to comment on this story, but did not get a response by our deadline. The RCMP said it supports independent investigations into deaths in police custody. The BC Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner referred to two specific requests in which it released some information, but withheld what it deemed to be personal information that was irrelevant to the public interest issue, or personal information that would be an unreasonable invasion of someone's privacy. Still to come on Day 6, Rift from the Headlines, your chance to win a Day 6 tote bag. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We're in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Phelan Johnson, in for Brent Banbury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. 
We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day six. This is a movie sound effect that you've probably heard at least a dozen times. <coughs> Film and sound nerds, you know it as the Wilhelm scream. It's legendary. The Wilhelm scream is a very unusual sound effect in that it's totally a cliche. It's the kind of thing that we usually try to avoid in sound design, but it's um, so distinctive and so interesting that people almost can't help themselves from using it. That's Craig Smith. He's the academic sound coordinator with the film school at the California Institute of the Arts. And, like he said, the Wilhelm scream is so distinctive that it's become the stuff of movie lore. It's been used in hundreds of films and TV shows. The Wilhelm scream is significant because it has kind of escaped multiple times. Uh, it sat at Warner Brothers for, for decades with very, very little use. It was discovered and put into the first Star Wars film. Um, and then there was this group of sound designers who it became an inside joke with them. They all thought it was such a funny sound that they all started using it and sneaking it in wherever they could. And eventually the audience started noticing it. The Wilhelm scream was first used in the 1952 movie Distant Drums, when a man crossing a river was bitten by an alligator. It became really well-known when it was used in the original Star Wars movie in 1977, when a stormtrooper gets shot by Luke and falls off a ledge in the Death Star. It's even been used in SpongeBob SquarePants. Help! Lunatic driver! It's named after Private Wilhelm, a character who is hit in the leg with an arrow in the 1953 movie the charge at Feather River. Wilhelm! Yeah, I'll just fill my pipe. Like I said, the clip is legendary. So imagine being the person who found the tape of the original recording session of the Wilhelm scream. I've actually been kind of amazed and totally confused at how much attention this is drawn. I mean, everybody knows the Wilhelm scream. It actually comes up in my classes, but people keep wanting to know. I was recently at an um, international audio preservation conference, and people would come up to me and say, oh, you're the Wilhelm scream guy. <laughs> so it's kind of a double-edged sword because that, you know, it wasn't my intent to make a big deal of it. I just thought, oh, great, this is an important thing. We need to get it out there. Um, and it's it's kind of overshadowed some of the other stuff, but that's okay because it gets people to listen to the, uh, you know, the other 4,000 effects that I have uh, uploaded. Craig teaches at the film school, but he also makes his own films. While he was working on a 1940s-era Western, he was looking for some older, authentic sound effects. And he was given boxes of old sound tapes from the University of Southern California's film archive. The, the Wilhelm Scream was in a collection of sound effects called the Sunset Editorial Collection, which had been donated to USC uh, when the company closed in the early 80s. But it was just rolls and little tiny rolls and rolls of uh, magnetic film, mostly some optical uh, tracks as well. And uh, there was a group of four teaching assistants at USC in the sound department in the film school there um, who had to transfer all of this stuff to quarter inch tape. 
So what they ended up with was about 40 rolls of quarter inch tape that really didn't have any markings on the outside that were unusual. Uh, it was just one of those little rolls transferred to a bigger tape and it had a, a very nondescript description originally. It was labeled uh, man bitten by alligators, short screams. So I didn't initially you know, recognize that as anything. And then, of course, as soon as I heard it, I knew I knew what it was. Craig knew what he had, but he wasn't sure how big a deal it was that he had found it. The first thing I thought when I heard it was, oh, there really were multiple takes because everybody speaks about the Wilhelm scream as a single entity. And over the years, I once in a while I'd hear it, I go, it sounds a little different. I wonder, I wonder what they did to it to make it sound a little bit different. But it turns out there were actually six takes uh, of the scream. Man getting bit by an alligator and he screams. The first one you did up here was much better. Oh! No, not, not an owl, a real scream of pain. So I actually started contacting sound designers that I know, including Ben Burt, and said, hey, is this is this really the, the Wilhelm scream session? Is this all of it? Does, does everybody have this? Is, am I the only one who's never heard this before? And it, it turns out that, you know, except for Ben, who was the one who started it off in Star Wars, uh, no, nobody had really heard it before. The actor is thought to be Sheb Woolley, who... Just to make this all even weirder, you might also know as the guy who sang this. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. Since he found the recording, Craig's garnered a lot of attention from film and sound buffs around the world. And he says it highlights the need to give more value to our archives. Sounds are a, a real kind of fast way to bring out emotion. They're kind of like a palette of colors, and we, we pick our sounds very carefully. And for years, we've been preserving all images. We preserve voices. We preserve music. But we really haven't been preserving these sound effects. And it's an important part of the way we tell stories. And if we don't try to keep it and preserve it and learn from it, I think it makes us weaker as sound designers even now. Even if we don't use these sounds, we should, we should listen to them and, and figure out why they did have this kind of power. Craig Smith teaches at the School of Film and Video at the California Institute of the Arts. Sunday morning, about 2.30, uh, I heard a voice at the door, and I asked who was it. And they said, this is Mr. Bryant. I want to talk with you and the boy. And when I opened the door, there was a man standing with a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other. In late August of 1955, Emmett Till traveled to Mississippi to visit with relatives. He was 14, he was black, and he was from Chicago. And some of his family didn't think the visit was a good idea. If you didn't live in the South at that time, you had no idea what it was like. It, it was not safe. Matter of fact, the things that they thought could happen did happen to him. That's Emmett Till's cousin, Wheeler Parker, who was with him on the visit. While Till was standing outside a convenience store with his cousins and uncles, 
He whistled at the store clerk as a joke. She was white. And without saying a word, everyone knew Till was in trouble. The clerk, Carolyn Bryan, also claimed that Till grabbed her and made sexual advances towards her. Three days later, in the middle of the night, Bryan's husband and brother-in-law showed up at the house where Till was staying and hauled the 14-year-old away. Uh, he, he just didn't, he just couldn't fathom what was about to happen to him. They tortured him, beat him beyond recognition, and shot him in the head. His disfigured body was found in the Tallahatchie River. The men who killed him were acquitted by an all-white jury, but they both later admitted to killing Till. The U.S. Justice Department has twice opened new investigations into Till's death, but they were both closed without any indictments or charges. Carolyn Bryant died in April. This week, U.S. President Joe Biden signed a proclamation establishing a national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother. Ollie Gordon is Emmett Till's cousin. She was with his mother on the day they found his body. Peter Armstrong spoke with Ollie in December, just after the investigation into Emmett Till's death was closed. Ollie Gordon, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for inviting me. What was your reaction when you heard that the U.S. Department of Justice was closing its investigation into the death of your cousin, Emmett Till? Well, I was saddened that they was closing the case. Um, but I, I guess I had to understand the little knowledge I have in law that that was just, you know, they couldn't prove, they could not prove it. That disappointment's been a, a part of almost your whole life. You were seven years old when Emmett was killed. When did you start fighting for justice in, in his death? I started fighting for justice in his death uh, along with his mother probably when I was in my mid-early 20s. Pretty much a silent voice, a support behind her. And then when she passed away in 2003, uh, my daughter kind of picked up the torch. She started a foundation in Mrs. Mobley's name, the Mamie Till Mobley Memorial Foundation in 2009. And uh, we carried the torch in the public from that point on until she passed. And uh, she passed March 21st, 2020 at the onset of this virus. So uh, I have been quiet in the last couple of years because trying to regroup myself and deal with her death. So now again, I'm back out on the trail, seeking justice in one form or another. Hmm. You were there when his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, got the call that Emmett's body had been found. What do you remember from that day? I remember um, as a child, I remember a lot of uh, screaming and crying and uh, looks like shop through the house as I could um couldn't understand because we had a, a happy home. We was always pleasant and it was unusual to see sadness and to see tears, knowing then that something was wrong, uh, probably not understanding fully what the screaming was about. I knew that Emmett was missing. And I knew that my mother was having um, dreams. My mother was very uh, spiritual and she could see things. And she had already started to talk about muddy water. His mother wasn't able to receive that. And I can understand that because you're not going to receive anything about your child, especially 
as horrific as death until you really know. I mean, that's just that hope that we have, that we hold in our heart. For most of the world, the name Emmett Till is a synonym of, of racial violence and, and injustice. But what can you tell us about Emmett Till, the boy, and what he was like? What do you remember about him? Thanks for asking, because Emma did have a life prior to death. He was a uh, loving, happy child. He was a, he was a regular uh, 14-year-old. I mean, he, he, he loved to make people laugh, so he was a dopester. He loved to pull jokes, anything to get a laugh. He was uh, very mannerable. He was very um, considerate of the elderly. He had always been trained that way. I mean, if he saw uh, an elderly person coming down the street with bags, he would always help. He would go and do this. No, uh, he helped his mom quite a bit at home, considering that it was just him and his mom. Uh, he told her, Mom, if you can go out and work, then I can take over the chores of the house, even at 14. He kept the house up. Uh, he learned how to pay her bills. So he literally had to get on the bus and go downtown and go to the various stores and pay the bills. So that was the type of child that he was. You know, the men responsible for his death are, are dead. They killed him, what, 66 years ago. There are some people who questioned the whole idea of opening the investigation. Why was that so important to you, to have his murder investigated again all these years later? Well, it was important because we as a family, we want to know the truth. We want to know what really happened uh, that would cause Emmett's life to be taken uh, in the most brutal, ugly way that it, that it was. So if that was new information that possibly could shed light and also to restore his credibility and his character, because they painted him they tried to paint him as a monster, and this is something that we want to restore his, credib his credibility and his character, because that's not who he was. He was not a monster. With, with the Justice Department's decision, how does it feel knowing that, that justice may never come for Emmett Till? Well, it, it, leaves, um, it leaves a hole in our hearts, because we would like to see justice for him but in the other in other words we will get justice maybe not from someone being uh prosecuted and going to jail but we get, it's, it's, we're going to get some kind of justice it's a stain on american history and i think yeah people will try to work to eradicate that stain as we go forward so my question is where do where do we go from here we won't stop so where do we go from here and how do we get to where we're going? And maybe somewhere in history when Carolyn Bryant's memoirs are opened after her death, probably, perhaps then we may be able to get some closure and understand what actually did happen. That is my hope. It, it has changed this case. It has changed the way I think people think about race and justice and injustice in America. Um, Emmett's mother, uh, Mamie Till Mobley, said uh, uh, the quote that always stood out for me is that she hoped her son didn't die in vain. Do you think Emmett Till died in vain? Absolutely not. Emmett's death uh, sparked the civil rights movement, the opening of the civil rights. We have 
laws in place now. We have privileges now that we did not have prior to Emmett's death. So no, his dying was not in vain. And um, even the work, he's still working from his grave because we are still getting laws on the books, laws changed so that these crimes cannot go unpunished. Because when Emmett was killed, there was no laws on the book for hate crime. Well, listen, thank you for this. Thank you for telling us more about Emmett, the person, and, and sharing with us the impact that this case continues to have. We really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you guys for having me. Ollie Gordon is the cousin of Emmett Till, who was killed in 1955. She spoke to Peter Armstrong in December. This is Rift from the Headlines our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Well, I went down to the Grundy County auction Where I saw something I just had to have My mind told me I should proceed with caution But my heart said go ahead and make a bid on that That's B.A. Johnston with I Need Donair Sauce, The Velvet Underground with All Tomorrow's Parties, and Sold by John Michael Montgomery. Dennis Andre of Hornpain, Ontario, guessed the headline we were looking for. Alberta auctions off life-size Donair costume. Interprovincial hijinks ensue. Congratulations, Dennis. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. I am floating in deep water Like the unfamiliar What is the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer. Put Rift from the Headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize? A day six tote bag. You can listen to that clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day six. From the headlines. That's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Chris Slade. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. I'm Phelan Johnson, in for Brent Banbury. Thanks for listening to Day 6.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.